0: Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today's episode is the first in our best of series. With the help of my co-host and Sing for Science social media guru, Bailey Constas, we'll be revisiting some of season one's best moments. Today, we'll be covering the first half of the season with MGMT, Nora Jones, Connie Britton, Renee Fleming, and Mac DeMarco. Bailey, thank you for joining me.
1: Of course. Happy to be here.
0: You have been on the inside uh, almost as much as I have in producing this show. So um, what are some of your takeaways from these first few episodes that we did?
1: Yeah, um... The first season is really about surrendering to nature. And I think more than once, guests have said, nature wins.
0: Mm. What was that thing that you posted? Suzanne Samard? you posted something, that, and I think the caption you used was, nature always wins. What was she talking about?
1: Yeah, she was talking about how trees and old forests are super complex and how we are quite literally descendants of trees in the very long evolution tale of things. And she was Mm. talking about this idea that we are not separate from nature and the trees kind of give us this gentle reminder that we're a part of them.
0: Yeah. And so let's listen to the clip from the first episode this is the inaugural episode of Sing for science and it featured mgmt and forest ecologist dr suzanne simard and this was one of the first episodes i was inspired to do because so many years ago when their song kids came out i was really drawn to one lyric in particular in the song where they talk about a family of trees i found it so incredibly evocative so i invited them on the show and, and suzanne was game to join so let's listen to this clip where they're talking about the lyrics, how they came up with it. And then Suzanne talks a little bit about how her work
2: connects to it. So I, I've heard a lot of different ideas of what the song's about, but specifically about that chorus line, not much mm. discussion. Um, I, I'm happy to talk about it because I've been kind of trying to figure out what it means for a long time.
0: Yeah. Please do. Let this be your forum to, to, to just riff. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said about trees having human qualities, um, in in this case, I was thinking about trees being very old organisms that kind of see humans' lifespans come and go. And it kind of like the idea that there was a group of of trees that had a a mutual desire to be haunted by a, a, a human ghost or something like that, some kind of quirky thing that a tree family decided to do. And I don't know how they ended up getting a ghost into their their uh, you know zone, but that was the, the idea, maybe. So you guys were you were in Connecticut
0: at Wesleyan when you wrote it. We were, yeah. Can can I ask? Was there? I mean, was there like mushroom foraging in the <laughs> wilds of Connecticut for you guys?
2: Um, I mean, not not in like the food, like edible mushroom foraging. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> n- no, um, I mean, I think we we foraged. So, you know, psilocybin mushrooms from different college dorm hallways. I don't... Yeah, like we weren't we weren't going out into the woods to to find them. Right,
0: um, but maybe yeah. once you had harvested them from a dorm, you might have ended up in the forest. Yeah, yeah, we that's, used to that's go. For sure.
2: What was it, this? Uh, we, we would go to this place, Wadsworth Falls, mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of times. And the devil, the Devil's Hop Yard, was another little park that we would go oh, to. Oh my. <laughs> God, everything is just so stark in New England. It is. (laughs) And very old and kind of haunted feeling.
3: I think that, you know, people have this innate connection to forests. We're we're actually descendants of trees (laughs) along the evolutionary pathway. And I think that even if you don't fully cognitively understand the origins of the song, I think that our own deep connections to trees, which are genetic and uh and also cultural. And, and you talked about the mystery of forests, that's deeply cultural. And when I started doing my research in forests, it's because I could see that, you know, forestry or the industrialization of forests was moving away from our, our deep heartful connections to forests. And I think that you're, you know, as you described this sort of just a visceral Outcoming of the song that it came from your heart, your gut, it speaks volumes about about really the how we've moved away and now moved back t- towards a better understanding of forests. And I have to say that my my own, as I grew up in forests in Western Canada, you know, I was a child of the forest. I just grew up in them. And when I became a forester and was watched in like horror as as we sort of flipped sort of our very basic understanding at the heart level of forest into something that made money and was part of the economic machine and was degrading our forests i thought you know that was what drove me to start asking questions about the family of forests <laughs> you know how, mm. how do we become how are we connected and how do we become so disconnected and how do we reconnect you know the industrial way of converting old forests which are complex Systems of many, many trees and plant and animal species working together to create a, a beautiful system into something that's very simplified, and basically mm-hmm. pared down to you know those species and individual trees that are big and fast-growing um, that bring mm-hmm. economic value. You know, we've started saying, okay, we can grow a forest like that. You know, and that's what I grew up in. You know, what I became part of that industrial machine when when I was a, a young undergraduate student and looked at this and said thought this is wrong headed. but mm-hmm. yeah, that that is that is the philosophy. It's alive and well in the world today and it underlies many problems that I think if we step back and say actually this isn't how the forest works that we can solve some of these problems.
0: Mm. So it's a, a monoculture actually invites disease into the forest, is that right?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, that's right. It, it's like diversity um, means that there's a variety of species and structures and different species have different tolerances to, to pathogens, for example, or invading insects. Or, so if you have a variety of species, if there is some sort of pathogen infecting a species, then other species will kind of take over and, and fill in those gaps. But also there's this, what I look at even more than that is that there's a synergy between species that they actually connect and communicate about their health, um, their, their, even their, their pathogen loads, and they can increase their health. You know, they can share resources to enhance the health of their neighbors. And this confers into, you know, a resistance against diseases. that It reduces their vulnerability to these damaging agents. So, so diversity just by a, a sheer numbers. Just to recap that, from a sheer numbers perspective, you know, if you've got many species, there's a low likelihood of something killing the whole forest. Mm. But at the same time, it's even more than that. It is it is the synergy between species that enhances the health of the forest. In looking at the disconnection between birch and fir and the disease among the fir, I wanted to know. How we were severing that relationship and what was causing the disease, and I started looking at the mycorrhizas, these beneficial fungi, thinking the answer lay there. And I discovered in my inquiries that these fungi actually linked the trees together. And I had a hunch already because there had been some primary work done in Europe, actually, where they, there were some laboratory study, a, a laboratory study showing that little pine seedlings could be connected. Below ground by their roots through these mycorrhizal fungi. And I thought, wow, this could, if this is happening in in our forests, in real forests, not just in the lab, um, this connection could be the starting point of the health of the forest. And so when I started looking, lo and behold, I found, and over the years, confirmed using advancing techniques in science from just looking to using molecular techniques and, and discovering this vast network of interconnection of trees, not just of the same species or the same age trees, but of different species and multi-aged uh, forests. And through this network, this fungal network, and you can think of it as like the internet, messages are passed between trees. And what I first started working on was you know, one tree that may be bigger or healthier would and in this case, um, my birch trees were bigger and healthier than my fir trees were sending uh, more nutrition to to these, uh, you know, sickly or, or not as healthy trees. And then as I looked more and more, I found that this resource sharing, if you think of things like water and nitrogen and the fertilizers of, of the forest, the phosphorus, that all of these things are moving back and forth between trees and they're shuttling them around below ground. The effect being that the health of the forest is actually become balanced. So old trees will support young trees, for example, especially if they're of the same kinship. And that's where this idea of the family of trees, there is a scientific basis for that, even though in the song, Andrew and Ben might not have thought of that at the time, but their visceral connection to the forest somehow, that was drawn out of them. And, <laughs> and we can get into that, but I think that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, this was... A pretty mind-blowing episode because for those listeners not familiar with Suzanne Simard, she she is well-known perhaps because uh, I think she had a very popular TED Talk. She coined this, this phrase in the 90s, the wood wide web, that talks about how all the trees in the forest communicate and help each other, regardless of species. She was also in the Netflix movie Fantastic Fungi about a season three sing for science guest paul stamets and uh it's just really fascinating knowledge that she has been able to assemble about how the forest thrives and how the forest depends on diversity and and i mean what better case to be made for the variety being the spice of life (laughs) right exactly and then so the next episode we did was uh nora jones and science journalist sean otto sean otto uh was actually a big source of inspiration for sing for science he wrote a book called the war on science wow he also as you alluded to he i think he does say nature always wins because this was recorded kind of peak pandemic i mean this was i think i recorded this in april 2020. And the basis of the episode was about embracing uncertainty and the importance of doing as much if you're a scientist. So we had Nora Jones talking about her breakout hit, Don't Know Why. So we connected those
4: two. One thing that we found through science is that the majority of the time, common sense is totally wrong and leads us in the wrong direction because we fool ourselves all the time with confirmation bias. It's one of the, maybe the number one risk in science is that you're going to make yourself see what you already thought that you would see or want to believe. And we all do that as humans. And science has taught us over and over again to reality check those, those gut hunches uh, because a lot of times they're wrong. And that's the only way, in fact, that science has helped us to move forward is to get ourselves out of the picture with testing. And the only way you're going to create something new, and that means you don't edit yourself, you don't inject your own ideas into the process, because all you're doing then is sticking in your preconceptions about how it should be instead of actually seeing what is.
5: Yeah, I think that there is something about letting it out that makes sense. If you edit yourself because you don't like the way it's certain things sounds, and you never put it down on the paper because you think it's stupid or you think, oh, this lyric uh, kind of reminds me of another song, so I'm not even going to bother. Well, it's just like a scientific theory, right? You're never going to rule it out unless you put it down mm. on the paper. What if it's the thing? I've written songs before that started out kind of one way. Maybe I didn't love them yet. Maybe they sounded a little bit too much like another song, but you have to see it through to the end. And then you realize you're in a completely different place. If you don't see things through and you don't follow the little path where where it goes, you're, you're not going to find out if you have a copycat song or if you have a brand new entity.
4: So, Have you ever gotten to the end and you just kind of followed this path and you have this kind of jangled heap of different stuff and you didn't know where it was going and you still don't really know, but you get to the end and and then you figure out how to put it all together?
5: Yeah, I mean, usually that's the goal. But I think, you know, sometimes you get to the end and you think, ah, that's cool, but I don't really love it. (laughs) (laughs) But usually I feel like if you follow your heart, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but if you follow your heart the whole way through, and yes, you use your brain a lot, but you also keep it sort of centered in your heart and your guts, then when you get to the end, whatever kind of weird little thing it ends up being, it's special because you followed it there with the truest of intentions. I'm always just trying to find something and I don't always know what it's going to be.
0: Yeah. And Sean, could you talk more about what you'd mentioned earlier about creativity as it concerns the creation of knowledge?
4: Creating knowledge is very much like creating art or any other creative pursuit. To a really great degree, you're fumbling around in the dark when you work as a scientist or an artist, feeling your way into something and you don't know if your effort will be fruitful or not. Very much like artists, scientists work and work to learn and sharpen their craft. And they work to get comfortable with the unknown because they're in a daily relationship with it. And embracing not knowing is really the only way you're ever going to find something new. Thomas Jefferson was a scientist and a lawyer. Uh, like Francis Bacon. Uh, and he put a lot of thought into the role of evidence in science and democracy. His three greatest heroes were scientists. And he wrote to a friend in the 1880s and he said, Wherever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government. And that's a really important notion that's gotten more important since then, because in a day and an age dominated by complex advanced science and technology, that means that in order to be able to govern ourselves using democracy, it's incumbent on each of us to embrace and support public education and embrace and support fact-based, evidence-based journalism, and to oppose their alternatives, because an educated public is the only hope we have of retaining a free public.
0: You know, I mean, that's one of the big takeaways for me from your book. You point out early on that the trouble with the way our uh, legislature works is that some huge percentage of our government is made up of attorneys, you know, trial lawyers who are trained to argue to win mm-hmm. rather than look at all the data and try and arrive at a conclusion from that. It's, it's the reverse. And so... That's why whoever's loudest and talks the most usually wins.
5: That's terrifying.
0: Yeah, it's pretty bad.
4: Yeah, and it's or whoever is the most passionately convincing. Mm. Yeah. And that just comes down to the different ways that scientists and lawyers kind of approach questions of fact. Part of it is this thing that you're talking about is this embrace of uncertainty. Because the scientist, in order to be Successful, they have to be both conservative in that they have to account for and explain all the known information about something that they're experimenting on in a paper that they write on it. Uh, or they could be shot down and embarrassed and it could cut their career short. But they also have to be totally open to. What's new? What's, what's the cutting edge? And in order to do that, they have to say, all right, I'm going to put this out there. This is what I think, what appears to be happening. But here are the places where our research wasn't able to answer anything. Mm. And here are the possible ways that this could be disproved. And then they publish it and they leave it open to anyone in the world who wants to come along and try and knock it down. And a theory in science is only as strong as its falsifiability, as its willingness to be uncertain about its conclusions and allow anyone, all comers, to come and try and rip it apart. And if nobody can, then we have a pretty high degree of certainty that it's true.
0: Did you say something in your book to the effect of the the closest that we can get to facts or the closest we can get to truth is evidence-based claims. Am I getting that right?
4: Yeah, for sure. Because that is independent of all our biases. You know, it's independent Mm -hmm. of our gender identity and our racial and ethnic and uh, political and religious identity and our national identity. All of those sources of bias are stripped out because it's Mm -hmm. open to peer review and it stands open to criticism by anyone. And if it can still hold up, then we have a pretty high degree of confidence that this is objective knowledge. It's not reliant on our subjective right. opinions.
0: I mean, that one of the things that that I found very moving was a a, a quote from Walter Mondale that was on your book jacket, and it says, uh, "He says evidence from science is one of the world's great equalizers because it forms an objective basis for public policy." This book illustrates how central that notion is to forming of modern democracy and how current attacks on science endanger our freedom. Policymakers and voters everywhere would do well to read The War on Science. How's that for a plug?
4: That's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great plug. And it's so true. I mean, as we all see today, unfortunately, in this crisis, COVID crisis that we're dealing with. Where we have political leaders who are really dismissive of and have been dismissive of the evidence. And ironically, here's the United States, who's the most scientifically and technologically advanced country in the world and stood to have the best outcome facing this crisis. And we're facing the worst outcome. And it's because we didn't base policy decisions on the evidence. So I'm feeling actually really hopeful because ultimately you can be sure of one thing is that nature wins i mean we can think all we want we can argue all we want but in the end nature wins and i was concerned that nature was going to win by us ignoring the climate crisis until we passed a couple of tipping points and we had uh, methane disruption coming out of the arctic ocean and and that might have been introduced a cycle that we couldn't get out of. This is giving us a window. First of all, it's giving us a window in reduced emissions, but also it's giving us a chance to take a step back to revalue what we care about in life and to think about science as a force that we exercise love with and not as uh, some enemy that we can disparage.
0: The big takeaways in this one for me were, one, drawing the similarity between creating knowledge and creating art about scientific pursuit, scientific discovery being inherently creative.
1: Absolutely.
0: And that's come up in other episodes. In season two, we had a uh, famous climatologist, Michael Mann, and Debbie Harry, and and. We talked about how much creativity went into his iconic hockey stick climate graph. And then the other thing, you know, the big one is confirmation bias, which is just something we all come burdened with thinking that we know something. And that often turns out to be wrong. Also, as Sean pointed out in this clip, it's often the case that our intuition is misleading.
1: Yeah. And I I think that is sometimes a difficult thing to get our minds around, because the couple of clips we just talked about were about trusting your intuition. But there is also this detachment from the outcome that I think the scientific method offers us. And I, I think that artists, musicians have, like he's saying, a constant battle with that unconscious bias of well, I see what I want the painting to be right now, but I need to let that go so I can actually do it. And I think it's just really interesting to think about science as, you know, it's just curiosity. We're just trying to figure it out, and our brains get in the way a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. So third episode, we had Rivers expert Paul Gallet and Hollywood film star Connie Britton I've yet to watch White Lotus. Have you seen it? No,
1: I haven't. I really need to.
0: No. <laughs> yeah. So this was recorded pre-White Lotus, I think, but we were connecting this to her work on the show Nashville because she had a song called The Rivers Between Us. So Connie, in L.A., I mean, do you see water conservation PSAs and efforts kind of always in your face out there?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't been in a drought in the last few months. And, you know, of course, we we had a really terrible drought last year and terrible fires. And we actually were restricted from water use here at that time. And it feels very immediate. I've definitely developed a new sense of how valuable water is and how much we need to take care of the systems that bring us clean drinking water certainly in this country as well as around the world.
0: Yeah. Well, so how did they enforce the restrictions?
6: Um, Well, our water uh, consumption was actually being watched. And if your water consumption and water bill went above a certain amount, you were charged fines and additional fees. Gotcha. You
7: know, it's funny in New York, back in the 1990s, when I was working for the state environmental department, The city of New York was using about 1.8 billion gallons of water a day. And there were no meters on the different uh, apartments uh, and the different apartment buildings. They just charged by the the frontage on the block.
4: Hmm. And
7: then the city required that meters go in and they started charging per gallon. And the consumption went from 1.8 billion gallons a day to 1.1 billion gallons a day. That Uh. was how much water we were wasting. It was shocking. So sometimes a little efficiency is a good thing. And like I say, if, if you need water to have a thriving city or have a thriving agriculture or to have rivers that are cool enough to support a good range of fish and wildlife, then you really have to not waste what you got. And I think that's a very, very traditional notion that things are too precious to waste. We got away from that a little. You know, I'm a a child of the the 70s and uh, conspicuous consumption and all that. I think that we're going to be better consumers if we take the conspicuous part out there. And certainly there's ways of reducing uh, demand on energy and energy and water intersect because you need the water to cool the energy plants. So I think we're getting better. Mm -hmm. I think we're learning some things. You know, there's the wastewater treatment plant in New York City that actually Mm -hmm. takes the methane gas that gets created during the water treatment and uses it to uh, power homes. And that's pretty important.
0: I'll tell you, I learned that firsthand because we live a block from those giant eggs in Greenpoint. You know the ones I'm talking about, Paul?
7: Sure. Uh, there's a waterway in New York called Newtown Creek. Right. And just so people understand how industrialized this is, this just wasn't a home to one of the uh, refineries in the Industrial Revolution. This was a home to the first refinery in the Industrial Revolution. And so it got dirty as hell. And it's getting cleaner. It's starting to recover. And there's an enormous wastewater treatment plant that makes sure that there isn't any more pollution that has to, than there has to be. And it captures that methane gas from that treatment and sells it off to National Grid or whatever company it is that provides natural gas to homes. So uh, the, that's an amazing feat of engineering.
0: Yeah. Very romantic offering in New York City. You can go tour the sewage treatment plant on Valentine's Day with your partner. <laughs> On and Valentine's so, Day. Yeah. So I went with my wife. Amazing. It is. And these things are really a marvel to stare at, these giant eggs and you go on top of them. I don't know. It's, it's a good thing to I've do. I've got to go check that out. It's it's very cool. I
6: think having that awareness, though, getting back to what you were saying, Paul, the the awareness of the fact that all of these resources are at risk of scarcity and pollution. And, you know, being in California where we were really face-to-face with the fact that we didn't have enough water was, was just, was a new concept for me. But ultimately it really has stayed with me. Every single time I turn on the sink, I think about where that water is coming from and and the amount that I'm using and I have that awareness even when I leave California now and I'm and I'm grateful for that and it kind of it, it sort of makes me think oh if we could create that awareness certainly about water around the country but also about all of the other environmental issues at hand we could be so effective as citizens and humans
7: That is really nicely said that is so true <laughs> Yeah
0: and to that end, how does conservation advocacy work with what you do?
7: So we have this uh, cleanup day mm-hmm. where we get uh, you know well over 2,000 people out to really connect with their waterway and to feel some pride of ownership and pride of care. That's one of the best ways to foster advocacy. We also have 180 volunteer community science partners who go out and do water quality testing. They've, they take a sample in their local waterway. They find out how much bacteria there is in it, find out how much dissolved oxygen bacteria is bad for people who want to be in the waterway fishing and swimming. What
0: does dissolved oxygen indicate?
7: Dissolved oxygen is how much uh, oxygen you have in the waterway to support your fish and other wildlife that don't breathe the way we do. So you need a, a decent amount of dissolved oxygen, too little, and the fish can't live too much. And you get those toxic algal, algal blooms and uh, you get situations in which you know, the waterway becomes unhealthy and chokes off, especially in the summertime. So uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks thing. Mm. Don't want too little, don't want too much. But when you do this community sampling and you feel like you are getting to understand the the chemistry of your waterway, things start to get really deep, no pun intended. Mm. And then you say to the government, look at all these people who are doing this work. They're doing shoreline cleanups. They're doing water quality testing. Don't you want to facilitate what they're doing with your own level of investment in our waterways. And I can tell you that just in the last five years, with this information in hand as to the areas where there's too much bacteria or too little dissolved oxygen, the state legislature in New York has allocated literally $3.5 billion for wastewater treatment and drinking water safety And you can already see the reductions in pollution because we're investing in our waterways and we're investing in our waterways because people are getting active. They're getting their feet wet. They're doing the water quality tests and they're really showing that this is important to them and And they love it. And what could be better? I live about uh, half a mile from the Hudson, but not a day goes by that I'm not either in the Hudson or right on its banks.
0: Something that I wanted to point out in this episode, both Paul and the science guest from the previous episode, Sean Otto, they both include an, an element of optimism. With Sean, it was, he, was, he was optimistic in that nature can be relied upon to always win out. Um, I'm sure there's a glass half-empty take on that, but that sure. was his. And then Paul was optimistic about how we are increasing investment in renewable energy.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's very easy to be downtrodden by this sort of topic. So listening to him made me feel better. um, And it made me feel Mm -hmm. like it was possible to engage with this topic and care more about it. Whereas sometimes I feel when you get so afraid of something, uh, you kind of just freeze up and you can't mobilize.
0: Yeah, 100%. You go full ostrich. (laughs) Okay, next up, we have opera diva, probably the most famous opera star in the world, Renee Fleming. And Renee has made substantial investments in the intersection between art and science. She's worked with the NIH. And she's also done work with the Canadian doctor that joined us on the episode, Dr. Bin Hu. And Bin has done a lot of work trying to help Parkinson's patients. And there's so much to be learned about the relationship between music and brain health from Parkinson's patients. And and, uh, in this upcoming clip, Bin talks about that. I think also in this upcoming clip, Renee talks about the Grateful Dead, which I didn't see coming.
1: Oh, yeah. And of course, the Grateful Dead are using, you'll hear it. They are using vibrations, tones to get their audience into a certain state. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant. I mean, why aren't we doing that on a daily basis? Right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Let's revisit this, baby. Ben, what, what do you see if you're looking at the brain of someone who's performing versus someone who's listening to music?
8: Haha. <laughs> I actually uh I think Rene probably is the very few people who actually do have a, a, a brain ima- image mm-hmm. uh that when she was seeing. Uh there was the a, F M R
9: I, yeah. I have an experiment. At the NIH. Yeah. So I was in the machine for two hours and they, uh, took images of me singing, speaking and imagining okay. singing. And it's on the website of the, uh, Kennedy center and for our sound health project. And it's really fascinating because imagining singing was, had the most powerful effect on the brain. It had, it affected more parts of the brain.
0: Yeah. And what do you attribute that to?
9: Well, they, the scientists who looked at the, uh, we're analyzing the images we're surprised and ultimately they said well okay you're a singer so singing for you is easy and you don't really have to think about it so for another person it probably would have been the strongest uh you know garnered the strongest response but for me imagining singing took a little bit more effort because i had to tune out the sound of the machine and the, and then there were multiple repetitions mm. and Etc. So that was the analysis in the end.
0: I would imagine that's because there's some amount of muscle memory that's going on.
9: Absolutely.
8: So there there was study actually uh, to look at the so-called muscle memory, whatever of a pianist. So if you learn a piece of music, you play it on the piano, you remember it, and then you go back into the scanner. If you just purely play that piece you just played that was exactly the muscle that control that fingers that area is activated so it's probably the similar to a singer you know the vocal when you
0: go in stuff. and imagine it
8: no you just listen you oh, just listen okay. to that piece you just play oh interesting okay so it's uh, yeah it's automatically uh it brings out the muscle entire muscle activity wow. when you play
0: well wow. so, so listening a listening experience is going to be entirely different for uh, a musician who perhaps has some experience or relationship to the piece of music than someone else?
8: Oh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if somebody did a, a detailed analysis with a group of singers, you know, at the level of Renee, for example, uh, there, there must be a very fundamental difference, you know, for an accomplished pianist. So what we found out is actually there's way more white matter connecting the two sides of the brain.
0: What's okay. white matter?
8: What matter is the, it's like uh, fibers. Those are the wires that connect Mm -hmm. neurons. Okay. So you need those wires so that to send and receive the message.
0: And they only exist separating in between the two hemispheres or is throughout the brain?
8: Whenever you have neurons that need to communicate to each other, they must go through the fibers, these axons to send out the electrical pulse and then to release the transmitter. Okay. So there's lung fibers, for example, from the cortex going to your leg muscle. And there's also short fibers just talking between neurons. So
0: could you talk a, a bit more about why it was you were inspired to, you know, assume this mantle of public health advocacy or or getting more resources uh driven towards this intersection of music and science and neuroscience specifically.
9: Well, first of all, it fascinates me as a musician. It's something you always, you know, in singers, what we do is so complicated because we're using involuntary muscles. We can't even see what we're doing. It's internal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the mind-body connection was something I was very curious about from a young age because at that time, medicine was the kind of denying that that existed. So in in just those couple of decades now, of course, it's it definitely accepted. But I just thought, I felt like the audience, the general public, should know more about the health benefits of music for childhood development, for all of the therapies. Ben Hu's work with Parkinson's patients is so inspiring, incredibly inspiring. And the the fact that he's developed an app that could treat, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at once is amazing. So- just to meet someone like Ben is is to me extremely exciting because it informs my work as a singer and it's also something that I love to share with my audience and they are fascinated by it.
0: Ben could could you speak to some of the work that you're doing uh with music and parkinsons and in the, in the app you developed?
8: Parkinsons uh, responding to music is a, is a, is a, a phenomenon that was actually first I would say formally documented by Oliver Sachs. You know the name, you know yes. the awakening, yeah, in New York. So actually we met uh in calgary when he came here. So so I talked about my work and actually he was extremely interested. He asked me to carry on. So actually I did, you know, in the past 15 years, this is mainly is my work, uh music and brain uh in Parkinson's. It's called Ambulosono. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a program where Patients, Parkinson patients, they put an iPod on their leg. So they start to walk. So they use their leg to bring out the music. It's almost like use your leg to play piano. You know, this is actually, uh, it's not like a a speculative work. So there's a very solid science about Mm -hmm. how the music can affect the brain area that controls walking. Okay. So this connection. From the music area in the brain to the area that controls walking, it's it's a it's a phenom- it's a phenomenon actually, and you can see when they hear a piece of music using the PET brain imaging that area controls walking is lit up regardless whether you move or not. Okay, so we don't know why we don't know why, but I I suspect it's because of uh, in the animal world. You can't see very much because of the trees or whatever. So the song actually is the primary cue that you use mm. to pray or okay. to escape. So that's why this 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 is a very old brain network. So what happened in Parkinson's is that you know as Oliver Sachs noted that some of these patients they can't they can't walk, but uh, but they can dance. Actually, they can dance perfectly. A few years ago, actually, there was an earthquake in Italy. So there's Parkinson's patients, they escape from their residence faster than anybody else. Okay, so so then why under certain conditions, for example, like this called the, the motor urgency or uh, with music, they suddenly they can move. This is a, just a, a anecdotal observation, but what we did is that we used this particular phenomenon to create it uh, technology. So basically you can use either an iPod or a, a sensor that uh, wrapped on your leg. Okay. So the patients will walk, but you can set the size of their steps. So they, they only walk faster or larger steps. The music will play. Okay. So they, 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 then they learn this and over and over hmm. again. So then their brain uh, created a new pathway. Okay. So because we usually do not use our leg to control music, you know this is similar to a pianist. So you learn to play piano over time, your finger movement be- becomes very fluid. So now you basically, you put this uh, music player on your leg and then you use your leg to control the music play. So what we found out actually exactly precisely as what we predicted, there's the left side of the uh, walking speed control area uh, shows Very dramatic change. This is after six months. What is uh, more interesting is that all these patients, once they have gone through this, uh, like over a a period of two years, gait function and then their overall motor function uh, improved uh, dramatically. Okay, So, so their clinical progression seems slowed. So
0: you had observed that Parkinson's patients could, uh, they could dance without visible tremors. Is that the case?
8: Okay, it's not all of them, okay? Some of mm-hmm. them, if they do not have their medications on, right. okay, they can barely stand up. They can barely walk, mm-hmm. they can't. But once the music is on, they can dance and uh, with a perfect dancing step, okay? So this is a, like a, a, a motor memory. Uh, okay. If you ask these patients, you know, they, you have to have the music they're really familiar with, and especially when we have been dancing with before. Uh, Music-related motor memory mm. that is in their brain is mm. permanently stored there. It doesn't go away when they have Parkinson's. So it's almost okay. like a reserve.
0: And are you telling yeah. me that they there is observable skill like they... You wouldn't be able to tell that they have Parkinson's? They're dancing that well and that fluidly? Some, some, few,
8: not many, okay?
9: Mm. There's a beautiful documentary. Um, Mark Morris's dance and, and his dance troupe have, have started a program that's now international. And the documentary is okay. called Capturing Grace. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it really shows okay. um, how this works. Uh, and Ben Hu, of course, knows the science, and he's created something that can treat more people yeah. uh quickly but but these motor issues that, that develop with certain disorders can be treated really well with music. You know, again if it's if it's this mm-hmm. or if it's a, a brain injury or stroke, um, suddenly people can h- regain skill and the music helps them kind of helps the brain make connections that it wasn't making. And it's it's really extraordinary.
0: Okay, very cool. So for our last episode we had indie musician and all around good guy, Mac DeMarco, and he spoke with an acoustician. So we're talking about the physics of sound. The acoustician's name was Russ Berger. He lived in Texas and he designs very, very fancy, expensive studios and spaces where we hear and make music. And in this particular episode, Mac kind of gave us an aural tour of his home studio, he built an echo chamber. And we talk a little bit about an an echo chamber in this episode and what reverb is and what reverb does. A lot of fascinating things to be learned from the physics of sound, so.
1: Yeah, I think what was really helpful for me in this episode, I'm a very visual person and having him talk about how tessellation, fractals, music, art, mathematics. They're all extremely related. Something clicked in my brain finally, and I was like, oh, sound waves. I get it. It's not just something we can't see. It Mm. finally made this auditory world so much more visual and clear to me. Oh, cool. Like, oh, yes, these sound waves are things that are affecting us, and they're our hertz levels that can make our arms vibrate, but that's a different level than what makes our lungs vibrate. It just made me understand sound so much better.
0: The risk of being pretentious. I'd like to quote a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem in which he talks about um, experiencing about, it's about experiencing light and sound and a sound like power in light. Wow. That was before electricity.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. That poem is the Aeolian harp. Anyhow, so with that, let's listen to our last clip. Bailey, thanks again for joining
10: me. You've been an incredible
1: co-host. Of course, anytime.
10: There was a study done... Many, many years ago over in uh, the UK where they studied a group of performers, rock performers, and half of them had hearing damage and half of them were just fine. They were playing the same band night after night, week after week, year after year. And it turns out the ones that had hearing damage, there was a correlation between them drinking and typically marijuana, but not not hallucinogens or that, but drugs that sort of retarded your physical response. The smallest muscle in the body is called the stapedius muscle. It's a muscle in the inner ear, and it acts like a little limiter. So, whenever it senses a really loud transient, it triggers and shuts down to protect the inner ear from loud noises. Uh, you've heard this if you've ever been, you know, you've been on the front line and you got the drummer behind you whacking on the snare drum, and sometimes your ear will go into spasm where it goes. You can just feel it like shutting down and almost spasming. Well, that's the stapedius muscle. Well, apparently drinking heavily reduces the speed with which it can operate. It lets transients by, therefore, hearing damage. Wow, that's crazy. So,
0: Especially to think that usually when I'm playing a show, alcohol is part of the equation. Yeah. And that's probably the loudest place that I'm you know, usually in. Well, no shows right now, but, uh, you know, for the most, that's, that's insane. Huh? Well, you heard it here. Folks got to ease up on the (laughs) hood
10: or just control your
0: levels. (laughs) Well, we're about at the midpoint of the show and Mac, I'm dying to hear the sound of the chamber of reflection, as it were, that you built in your basement. Could we get a taste of what it sounds like?
9: Sure. Sure. Let's see. There
0: may be some strange sounds as well. The thing about the chamber is that uh, it's not, I mean, it's a room down there, but it's not exactly perfectly isolated. So a lot of times when I'm recording, I'll hear a truck going by or birds chirping or a helicopter or something. So if any of those sounds come in, don't be alarmed. It's just, you know, but let's try a little bit. This is just, I'm just running straight into it. it. Let's just bring that bus end up. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. Oof, that's the sound
9: of my basement. That's nice. <laughs> oh, my mic gain is pretty high. It's got a pretty good tail, you know.
0: Russ, could you tell us a bit about what we're hearing or what reverberation is?
10: Well, reverb chambers are used for all different kinds of things in, in acoustical measurements. But they're also made, you know, like the great example here. Of he made one himself where he's placing dimension and space behind his voice and other instruments. And um, typically reverberation time is what people refer to, and it's usually in a metric of RT60, where uh, it's the time it takes sound to decay 60 dB, and it's usually measured in the 500 hertz band. And there are several things that affect reverb time, the volume, the absorption coefficients of the wall, the shape to a degree, but mostly that volume is the big, is the big dictator there. And to get longer reverb times, you need to, the walls need to be very very smooth and reflective and hard and it's best if the room is is shaped optimally so that you're avoiding certain standing waves which are, occur in any time a room is bounded but build up when room dimensions hit on multiples of one another but you're looking at that mean free path that the, the the path uh, for sound to make it all the way back around a room to the microphone, that uh, that distance affects the, the reverb time. But the volume is, most, is mostly of it. it. As you start making the room smaller, it starts developing certain characteristics that you can hear.
0: So is perhaps one of the reasons why listening to music with reverb is so pleasant is because it gives all these senses a, a run for their money?
10: It does. You know, you hear reverb and reverberation always sort of indicates, again, reverb is decay over time. Right. So when you have a transient in a room or an acoustical event, uh, you have the initial transient and then you have the decay and sound bounces around the room and returns back to you, the listener, and you have an impression of how big the room is, the size of it, the shape, what the finishes are, your placement in the room, are you standing right next Mm -hmm. to a wall? you're out in the middle of the room and this reverberation simulates that sound when you're out in a cathedral or in a church or in a large volume space it it simulates that but the reverb o- is only coming in a stereo recording from the front right from two areas so its ability to wrap around you and envelop you is is limited but again our brain is so wonderful it starts interpolating And leaving you with the, if you're just squinting one eye down and listening hard, well, then you're going to go, oh, it's only coming from up there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you're into the music and you've uh, given yourself over to the experience, your brain will start filling in and creating that envelopment. Oh, so do you know anything about how, uh,
0: when we were talking about the microscopic hairs on our face, being able to detect higher frequencies, are there... Other parts of the body that correlate with certain
10: other resonant frequencies absolutely um the well, the resonant frequency of a of the chest cavity is somewhere around sixty to seventy hertz, and if you'll notice most consumer speakers, there's a big bump there, so man, I really feel this in my chest, man. It's really thumping, man, great bass um, the stomach is around four to eight hertz. Um, shoulders about the same lungs are kind of in that lower five hertz range. Hands and arms are up around 20, uh, maybe 20 to 70 Hertz. And so that, that just, um,
0: that just means that structurally they, they, they vibrate harmonically where they respond with, yes. with that frequency. Yep. I mean, there's some frequencies that just hurt you. You know, it's like, I mean, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that's like, there it is, 5K. Like, I don't, I don't know. But it's like, (laughs) you know, when the sub is like so insane at some concert that you kind of feel like you're going to throw up or like, you know, poop your Uh pants or something. Like,
10: that's crazy. Isn't there
0: something called the brown sound? A
10: brown note. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, Actually, that was um, Dr. Boner out of Austin, who was hired by NASA to... uh, There's
0: no one named Dr. Boner.
10: Oh, yes. He was one of the... No, truly. He was one of the... And actually, there are two other acousticians named Boner. uh, uh, Richard and... uh, uh, Yeah, Dick Boner. Yeah. (laughs) No way. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Boner Boner was famous. He's the one who invented equalization. Okay, he's the first one to tune wow. uh, PA systems yes. with uh, resonant coils. He's amazing. You can look in the literature on him. He's he is a, a genius. So anyway, they're afraid that from this all the vibration and sound, incredible sound pressure levels that are there in in a rocket launch, trying to escape gravity, that uh, our astronauts would uh, would void themselves. Oh man. <laughs> But, uh, you know, they submitted people to almost 160 dB of sound from fractions of a cycle all the way up to about 50 hertz. And it did cause all kinds of problems. They had vision problems, made them nauseous. They had cognitive problems, you know, working tasks. uh, Motor skills were off and other effects and stuff. But but there was no profound pooping produced.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Well, on that note, so to speak, it's about time for us three to wrap up. Mac, thanks for taking us into your basement. And Russ, thanks for giving us a good education on the physics of sound. Thanks,
10: Matt. Thanks, Mac. Great to be here.
0: Okay, take care, guys. Yeah, God bless you. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Stay tuned for other shows in our Best Of series, and be sure to check out our other episodes. For more information, please visit singforscience.org and follow us on social media at singforscience. Thanks for listening.